Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and you are tuned into the Double Edged Sword program. Here on 88.1 KRTT Great Bend and 88.1 KVDM Hayes. The voice of divine mercy for the greater Ellis and Barton County Metroplexes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And so here on Divine Mercy Radio, on this installment of Double-Edged Sword, I have a couple of ideas. Again, these ideas are not mine, but the fusion of the two ideas is mine. Um, the, the two ideas are what we're going to call the three eyes, as in E-Y-E-S, as, you know, the eyeballs in your skull. And um, the, this actually comes from, I think, the, the first time I heard it was Fulton Sheen, but I think Fulton Sheen got it from C.S. Lewis. And he talks about the three eyes that we have in our bodies. You might think, well, we only have two eyes. Well, actually, we have three that make up our whole person. And then after that, we're going to look at some thoughts from Blaise Pascal, who talks about people who are searching for God. And there, there's kind of three, three types of people in that regard as well. And so I'm going to take this idea of the three eyeballs or the three eyes from either C.S. Lewis or Fulton Sheen and or both of them, and this idea of the three kind of people from Blaise Pascal and put them together and see what we come up with. So we'll start off with the three eyes, okay? And again, again um, I'm pretty sure it was C.S. Lewis that kind of came up with this, and I think Sheen took it from there, probably put on one of his TV shows. But the eyes that we have is in EYE are the various ways that the human organism might perceive truth, okay? And so we have the eye of the body, and that's the most obvious one. We have two eyes in our skulls, and, um, and that eye, the eyeball that we have, perceives truth through things like shapes and forms and color and data and information and things like that. That's the eye that looks at the little screen on your cell phone, okay? That's the eye that watches YouTube videos. That's the eye that, you know, surfs the internet and things like that. So the eye of the body perceives truth through what, you know, the photons going in and hitting the retina of the eye and kicking off a cascade of chemical reactions that our mind then is able to interpret as images and sight and things like that. And as far as it goes, it's, it's okay. You know, the, the eye of the, of the body does pretty well. I mean, that's how we're able to build houses and see where to stick the gas nozzle in the, in the car to fill up with gas and, you know, all the various things that we have to do. You know, the, the various things that, um, the physical things that, that are necessary for human life. And so the eye of the body serves us and it serves us well, but it can only serve us so far. Um, the next one, and so we'll do all three of them, then we're going to kind of go back and see how it all fits together. The next would be the eye of the mind. And the eye of the mind perceives truth through reason, all right? And w- so when, when we talk about reason, you know, there, there's a number of things, the little examples we could use. One would be like the example, for example, of the log- logical syllogism, you know, where we would say some, you know, in, in the old logic books, they would say, you know, if P, then Q. Well, what's P and Q? Well, it would be like this. If we say, Susie plays tennis. Susie keeps her tennis racket by the back door. Susie plays tennis on Tuesdays. It is Tuesday, and Susie's tennis racket is not by the back door. Therefore, Susie is playing tennis. Okay, and so it's 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 logic. You know, it, it, it's these logical syllogisms. If this, then this, then this, then the conclusion. And so, um, you know, the the mind, the, the eye of the mind, then would perceive this truth through reason like that. Um, probably a lot of us might remember when we took geometry. The everybody hated these things. So it was the only thing I was any good at. Were, were the proofs? Whenever we talk about the proofs in in geometry where you would be given certain things. You, they would show you a couple of pictures of a couple of triangles, maybe. And they would say, given that, you know, this angle and that angle are congruent and given that, that this side and that side are the same length or whatever, prove the two triangles are similar. And so you would get your axioms and your, and your various um, things that you had learned and put, and put, put it together into a proof that would show, okay, these two triangles are similar or these two angles are congruent or these two lines are parallel or something like that. And so the, you know, the eye of the mind you know, would perceive truth through reason. Now, the last one, and I said that we're going to go back and kind of look at this in some more detail and kind of pick it apart, is the eye of the heart. Now, before we talk about heart, I want to be very, very clear as to what we mean by heart. By heart, I do not mean the center of emotion, 
all right? And in our times, unfortunately, that's what most people think. When most people think of heart, they think of balloons and birds and flowers and a box of chocolates and a dreamy look in our eye going, oh, I love you so much, okay? No, um, the eye of, when we talk about the heart, and um, when the New Testament talks about the heart, and this is really important, is when the New Testament talks about the heart, the New Testament says that the heart is the core, okay? And in fact, that's the Latin word for heart is core. And, um, you know, from, from where we get our word like, you know, reactor core, core of the apple, you know, the center of something, okay? And so the, the idea of a New Testament Greek of heart is it's talking about that part of us where everything about us that makes us who and what we are intersects and kind of comes to a focus, all right? And so the, the, the idea of heart is where our mind, our will, our intellect, our, our sense of beauty, our, you know, relationships, you know, just the, everything that kind of makes us who and what we are all comes to, you know, comes to a focus in this part of ourself. And that core of us, that heart, okay, is, is what we're talking about here. Again, I'm, I'm not talking about just emotion. Emotion is a subset or is, is a component of heart, okay? But heart is made up of much, much more, um, at least in the, in the New Testament Greek sense. You know, heart means, you know, the mind, the will, the intellect, you know, our desires, our hopes, our dreams, you know, all that stuff, you know, is the heart. And the heart then perceives truth through faith, okay? Now, I'm just going to go through these one more time very briefly, then we're going to go back and pick them apart. The eye of the body, that is, you know, the eyeballs in our skull, they perceive truth through shapes, forms, and data, you know, through things that we see. The eye of the mind perceives truth through reason. And the mind of the, the eye of the heart perceives truth through faith. All right? Now, let's go back and kind of pick these apart. When we talk about the eye of the body perceiving truth through shapes, reason, data, and things like that, basically the things we can see. Again, that's as far as it goes, it's all well and good. The problem is, is what's happened probably ever since sort of the computer revolution in the United States. I'm guessing probably maybe since about the mid-1980s or something like that, when the old IBM PC came out and just kind of taught people, it's like, you know, this is something that can be in everybody's home, and it's a new, it's like a pair of pliers in the, in the kitchen drawer. You know, this is a, this is a tool that everybody's going to have, and of course now everybody does have them in some form or another. But the problem is, is that, you know, the computer, and again, as useful as a tool as it is, it's reduced our, our belief in truth is that in that truth is only what I can see. I remember, you know, when I was teaching at TMP, you know, and we would talk about the, you know, the 10 plagues in Egypt or talk about miracles, you know, and things like that. And the kids would say, look, you know, if, if, if I can't see it on a YouTube video, it's not true. If, you know, if it doesn't show up on the screen in my phone, how can you believe it? Okay. Well, so again, what, what's happened is the, the, ever since the 1980s, I think, our culture has chucked the idea of the heart perceiving truth through faith and the mind perceiving truth through reason, all right? That everything has been dumbed down and distilled down to what we can see and what we can experience through the eye of the body. And that's really unfortunate because you go to the eye of the mind perceiving truth through reason. You know, years ago when I was in the seminary, I was kind of going through a section of our seminary library. And there was, there was from back in the days when the seminary actually had a high school there as well, there were some textbooks in the seminary library, high school logic textbooks. And up until about the 1960s, high school students were all expected to take a course in logic. My guess is they probably hated it um, because it's, it's you know, totally theoretical and everything. But in this textbook, it was, it was really quite well written. And it would start off saying, okay, you know, if A, then B, then C, then D, then the conclusion. You know, if, we can, if, if A is true, then B is true, then C is true, and therefore we can conclude that D is also true. All right. And so it would, it would kind of take you through the whole thing. Now, the thing is, is that people can also use logic and reason. They can twist it around. You know, like we, we talked about Susie playing tennis. Well, here's another one. You can say all trees have trunks, which is true. An elephant has a trunk, which is true. Therefore, an elephant is a tree, which is obviously not true. Okay. And the whole thing um, pivots on, on the definition of what a trunk is. A tree trunk and an elephant trunk are two totally different things. Well, what this logic book was teaching, you know, 16-year-olds how to do is it, it, would, it would start off with sort of a, the, a logical, theoretical um, exercise, you know, if this, then this, then the conclusion, you know, major, pre major premise, minor premise, minor premise, conclusion. And it would, you know, teach the kids how to think. And they'd say, now, here's...
here is a speech that was given by somebody, some orator, some politician or something. Read through it, identify the major premise, the minor premise, and the conclusion, and isolate any fallacies if you can find them, okay? And so um, then the, you know, the, the student then would have to read through the, through the speech about three-fourths of a textbook page, single-spaced, and read through it and say, okay, you know, here's the guy's major premise. You know, his major premise is he wants to convince us that, you know, we need whatever, you know, more spending for the military or more after-school programs for kids, whatever the heck it was. I forgot what it was. But, um, but you know, you have this guy saying, you know, making his point, I want, you know, this is, this is what I believe, you know, kind of his major premise, minor premise, therefore this, therefore that, therefore the conclusion, therefore this is why what I'm saying is correct and why you should believe it as well. And then, of course, they would teach them how to look for those fallacies, you know, the difference between a tree trunk and an elephant trunk, you know, because people can make a lot of things, they're called, they're called sophistries, you know, from the, the, the Greek word, the, the S-O-P-H is, is the, the, um, the root for wisdom, okay? And so um, you, there are these various sophistries, you know, that, that sound good. And so therefore, you know, and since it makes sense, you know, I remember, you know, just a while back, I was listening on Catholic Radio, they're talking about women's health. Well, again, it sounds good. Women, we all love women. Women are great. You know, health, health is a good thing. Everybody wants to be healthy. Therefore, women's health must necessarily be a good thing, right? Well, not necessarily because it's used as a front you know, to, for the whole abortion mess. And, and abortion is not good for women. It's certainly not good for the babies that are ripped to shreds. And so, you know, we have to kind of see through all this stuff. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, we notice we, we've chucked the idea of searching for reason. Okay, that's gone. In fact, during the 60s and 70s, the logic classes kind of disappeared from the classrooms. About the only place where, where high school students now are, are exposed to this kind of Socratic logic is in their geometry classes when, when they learn those proofs, and most of them can't stand doing that. And so the thing is, I think that when we look at the, the idea that we've, we've taken the idea of, of reason and chucked it out the window, you know, in, in our times, we've gotten rid of it um, in favor of just what shows up on the little screen. Now, if we're not going to believe reason, we certainly aren't going to believe faith, all right? And so we, because if, if someone says, well, how do you know that? And you say, well, I know it through faith. In our times, you might notice that by saying, I know this and I accept this as an article of faith, the people who believe in just the eye of the body are going to say, well, that's because you're weak. You know, where's, you know, where's the YouTube video? You know, where's, where's, the, where's the information? Where's the picture? Where's the data? Where's the graph that shows that your faith in the resurrection of Jesus is reasonable, okay? And so, um, and in fact, actually, if we, if we go back, you know, before um, the endarkenment, before the, the 17th and 18th centuries, the, the people had no problem, you know, the West, if you want to call us that, you know, Western Europe and everything, all these countries that, that um, have now make up Western Europe, that were sort of the, the backbone of Western civilization, um, knowing things through faith, reason, and data, that, they, they, put, they put them all together. They, they had those things working together um, quite nicely. And then whenever you had the, the disaster called the French Revolution that came along, the first thing that went was faith. And in fact, you might, you might, if you know anything about that, you know, they, they took the, the great um, Cathedral of Notre Dame in, in, in Paris and, um, and renamed it the Temple of Reason, okay? Because part of the whole thing with, with the French Revolution was we're getting rid of religion, we're getting rid of faith, we're getting rid of, you know, anything that um, it cannot be rationalized by the, by the human mind, and, um, and we're getting rid of it. And so, and so, they, you know, they, they worshipped reason, and they, they thought that was the way to go. They got rid of faith. Well, so now you have, you know, us children of the endarkenment, you know, the 17th and 18th century thinkers that um, basically formed the United States. You know, you know, people like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and John Jay and Alexander Hamilton and George Washington, they were all very much, you know, enlightenment thinkers. But they still had their faith with them to some extent. But but the thing it is, their whole it was, it was all about reason, all right. And then, like I say, you get up to about the, to the 1960s, and the people that wanted to steer the country in a different direction, they've done, been very successful at it. Got rid of the teaching of logic and reason in the schools, because if you taught kids how to think logically and rationally through these logic and reason classes, they would see through such things as. You know, well, you should be free to marry the one you love. You know, well, again, 
marriage is good, freedom is good, love is good, therefore gay marriage is good. No, it's not, you see. And again, see, people who had been educated in logic and reason would see through that kind of nonsense, and you know, none of, half of what's going on now would have never been allowed to fly. And so that's why, you know, whenever the Marxists and so forth took control of the education system in this country, and they do control it now from kindergarten through the university level, they've gotten rid of the backbone of logic and reason. You know, they, they got rid of that. And so um, now we just have what we have, shapes, forms, and data. If it doesn't, you know, if you can't show it to me on a spreadsheet, if you can't show it to me on a video, on my phone, it doesn't exist. It's not real. It's not true. And so hopefully, you know, I think we can see that, um, you know, we need those three eyes. And um, I think, you know, again, most of us would, would, would acknowledge, I certainly acknowledge, that while we can see through the eye of the body, it serves us and it serves us pretty well up to a certain point. And then from there, you know, the mind has to take over and then the mind has to perceive its truth and pursue truth through reason and through logic, you know, which is a good thing. And then, but even that falls short, eventually the, you know, reason and logic has its limits. And then, you know, the heart where all of this stuff comes together has to make that leap of faith. And, you know, the thing is, is that whenever we talk about making the leap of faith in our times, you know, if, if you're in, in, a, in a college class, if you're in a sociology class or something like that, and you talk about making a leap of faith, your grade's probably going to suffer, number one, but you're just not going to be taken seriously. Yet the thing is, is that when you look at, especially in, in the wake of the disastrous French Revolution and in the wake of, of the legacy of the Endarkenment, which some people call the Enlightenment, you know, it, it seems like the, the, the quintessential field of learning, you know, the purest learning is, is physics, you know. And um, everybody thinks that physics is where you find pure science because it's just it's based on observation backed up with mathematics. And, you know, what could be more pure than that? And so then you say, well, you know, physics is kind of the pure science. And you say, well, then what's chemistry? Well, chemistry is just basically the physics of matter. Um, you know, that the chemistry is a study of the physics of how, you know, certain protons and neutrons and electrons all agglomerate together to make atoms and then how these atoms, you know, stick together to make various compounds and stuff and how these compounds react under various circumstances and so on. But basically, chemistry would just would be an endeavor of applied physics. And then biology, then, is just very complicated chemistry, you know, because um, biomolecules and stuff are very complicated. And, and, you know, you get a molecule big enough and it starts to reproduce itself. And then you have life, you know, and biology is a study of life. And so biology is a study of chemistry, which is a case study in physics. And so it all kind of goes back to physics. And so, um, you know, people would say, well, you know, so physics is kind of the, you know, the, the, pure, the pure science and the, the pure way that we, go, that we go about finding truth. And so, um, you know, and again, as far as it goes, it, you know, it, it works. There's no, no point denying that. And then, and then so hopefully then, you know, through using a little bit of logic and reason, you know, we can kind of put things together and, you know, put ideas together and come up with things like jumbo jets and, you know, cures for diseases and things like that. But then when you get to faith, then all of a sudden people are going, nah, that's just a puff of smoke. That's hanging jello on a nail. You know, faith is just too subjective. Um, faith is, you know, for people who can't handle, you know, real, you know, who can't handle physics, basically. All right. Well, the thing is, is though, is if you go back to our friendly physicist and you go, well, you know, what is the cornerstone theory of modern physics? And, um, and most people are probably to say, well, it's the atomic theory. It's the theory that... Everything in the universe is ultimately made up of atoms, and those atoms are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons, and of course the protons, neutrons, and electrons are made up of even smaller subatomic particles and so on, well and good. And you say, okay, well, but if you're telling me that the eye of the body is the only thing that matters, how do you know that such a thing as even an electron exists? And, well, you know, we have evidence. Well, you have evidence. I know you do. you got lots of evidence, okay? And we have lots of evidence for electrons, and we have lots of formulas and equations and stuff. And all of it seems to one thing backs up the other and backs up the other until it all kind of makes sense. And really only a fool would argue that there is no such thing as an electron. But based on your own rhetoric, you're saying, if I can't see it, it doesn't exist. So I want you to show me an electron, Okay. Well, again, if you were to go up to your to your physics teacher, your chemistry teacher in college, or you know anyone that's you know that studied this stuff their whole life long, and say, you know, this you know your field of study just fascinates me. Can you show me a neutron? Can you show me an electron? I want to see what one looks like. 
I want to put it on my phone. Um, they would all say, well, we can't because you stop and think about it. If you were going to look at an electron, what would you look at it with? Whatever you look at it with, you know, whatever piece of equipment you're trying to see it with is made up of electrons as well, okay? So if you're trying to look at a subatomic particle, it's, you're going to look at it with, a, with an apparatus that's ultimately made up of subatomic particles. And how can you see a subatomic particle with another subatomic particle? You can't, all right? And so essentially what ends up happening is in order for us to do science, in order for us to you know, be able to perceive these things through shapes and forms and data and so on, that the eye of the body, when it reaches its limits, in order to do modern science, you have to take a leap of faith. You have to, you know, where all of this stuff comes together in the core of our being, you know, that sees, that it perceives truth through faith. It is, it is by a leap of faith that we believe ultimately that this stuff exists because you can't see it. And so, again, by, you know, the, the people that, that want to, you know, disregard and, and you, know, you just totally eschew faith, then, then don't get into your next airplane, you know, because it was built by people of faith. You know, the, 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 the people that put the, you know, the 747 together or the jumbo jet together, you know, you know granted, a lot of them are, you know, just people on the line doing their, doing their assembly job and everything. But the engineering genius and stuff that, that comes up with all these things, you know, they're basically functioning out, out, of a, out of a, you know, a worldview that takes it on faith that the fundamentals of their worldview exist. All right. And so, again, my, my first piece, the first part of the program here this, this time on this installment of Double-Edged Sword is look at these three eyes. And again, I think that most people were going were to go, well, of course, you know, it's reasonable. Um, there's, there's nothing kooky about believing in what we can see. You know, if, if, if I see a banana on the countertop, I can conclude that there is a banana on the countertop because I saw it, okay? Um, the eye of the mind perceiving truth through reason, even though, again, we, we, we don't really want to talk about reason these days because the, the power brokers of our day and age do not want voters and students thinking logically and reasonably because if we did think logically and reasonably, they wouldn't get away with most of what they're getting away with, all right? But even though we don't think logically and reasonably in our times, everything has been reduced to emotion and to what we can, again, see on a, on a smartphone screen. But nonetheless, though, you know, people I do think reasonably understand that, well, you know, reason is a good way to arrive at truth, you know, the way the mind works. And so what I'm prepared to argue here, along with Fulton Sheen and C.S. Lewis, is that perceiving truth through faith that for the heart to find truth through faith, it is every bit as reasonable for the heart to perceive truth through faith as it is for the eye of the body to see truth through shapes and forms and data and, and the cell phone screen. It is every bit as reasonable for the heart to perceive its truth through faith as it is for the mind to perceive truth through reason. Okay, and um, and so that that's kind of the you know the picture that I want to kind of put together here on the first part of the program. And again, to you know look back in history. And see how during the, the 18th century with the so-called French Revolution, um, again, even if you're not much of a student of history, you are a recipient. You are an heir of the, the disaster that came out of the French Revolution. Most of us are. And that, you know, the, the idea of, of the French Revolution just completely, you know, throwing faith out the window in favor just of reason. And then you get to the 1960s where we threw reason out the window in favor of just of what we can see. And, you know, this hasn't done us any favors, that we need all three. We need the eye of the body to perceive its truth through shapes and forms and data. We need the eye of the mind to perceive truth through reason. And we need the eye of the heart. Again, the heart being where everything that we have in our comes to a focus to, to define us as to who we are. The heart sees things through faith and perceives truth through faith. And that that is perfectly reasonable and, and, and that those things should work together. And in fact, if we allow them to, they do work together very well and we function a lot better as human beings. So we're going to come up with a little break here now. Again, I am Father Fred Gatchett. I am the, the pastor at St. Joseph's Parish here in Hayes and the chaplain of the Como Catholic Campus Center on the Fort Hayes State University campus. And you are listening to the Double-Edged Sword program here on Divine Mercy Radio, 88.1 KVDM Hayes and 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, where we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. We're going to take a little break now. We'll be back in just a few minutes. And just remember, unless you have a papal indult that is special permission from the Pope, do not touch that dial. And we'll be back in just a few seconds.
This message is brought to you by Jerome and Angela Schmeidler, owners of Messenger Catholic Books and Gifts in Hayes. Thank you for taking time out of your day and tuning into Divine Mercy Radio, where the truth is alive and burning bright. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. John chapter 8, verse 31. Remember that God has baptized you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Do not let the evils of the world quench the flame burning in your heart. Always stand for the truth. And I won't back down. Well, I know what's right. I got just one life. In a world that keeps on pushing me Hey gang, we are back. I am Father Fred Gatchett. I'm the pastor at St. Joseph's Parish here in Hayes, Kansas, and the chaplain of the Como Catholic Campus Center on the Fort Hayes State University campus. And you are tuned in to the Double-Edged Sword program here on Divine Mercy Radio, 88.1 KVDM Hayes and 88.1 KRTT Great Bend. And we are broadcasting to you from the Divine Mercy Pavilion here in beautiful downtown Hayes, America, as the locals call it. And um, today... We're looking at um, three eyes, as in E-Y-E-S, not, not I as in I am, I am the one doing the radio program, but eyes as in what's in your eye, what's in your head. And um, we talked about the three eyes, the eye of the body, the eye of the mind, and the eye of the heart. And we talked about those things in the, in the previous um, section of the program, how the eye of the body perceives truth through shapes and forms and data. The eye of the mind perceives truth through reason. And the eye of the heart perceives truth through faith. And kind of what we wanted to show there was that it is every bit as reasonable to perceive truth through faith as it is through reason, shapes, and forms, and data. And um, how our, our society has kind of rejected that idea and it has been to our detriment. The next piece that I want to talk about then comes from Blaise Pascal. And again, the, the, the three eyes, I think it was C.S. Lewis that came up with it. And, um, and Bishop Fulton Sheen talked about it as well. I think Sheen got it from Lewis, but I'm not sure. But the next three things here come from Blaise Pascal. And so none of this stuff is original to me. The thing that is original to me is taking the three eyes from Lewis and these three kinds of people from Pascal. We're going to try to put them together and see what we come up with, okay? And so Pascal says basically there are three kinds of people, okay? And that's always kind of a funny thing because you'll always have people, oh, you know, there's two kinds of people on this earth. There's four kinds of people, you know, and everybody kind of have their little categories they put people in. One guy kind of a smart aleck one time said there's two kinds of people, those who believe there are two kinds of people and those that don't, you know. So, again, it's just it's kind of a goofy thing. But what Pascal is talking about, he's talking about people who pursue God. And there's three kinds of people that do that. First of all, he's going to say there are people who have no use for God whatsoever and don't pursue him and do not serve him. Those people are irrational and they are, they are unhappy. They're crazy and they're miserable. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Then there are those who seek God but have not found him. Okay? Those people are rational. They're reasonable people because they're doing the reasonable thing. They're seeking God. But they're unhappy because they haven't found him yet. Okay? Then there are those who have found God and serve him. And those people are reasonable and happy. Okay? So let's just go back and review those real quick. Blaise Pascal, again, he's a, he's a, um, a French philosopher and, and, and mathematician and, and kind of a theologian of sorts. Um, if you ever took algebra and you, took a, you, you did Pascal's triangle, this is the guy that came up with that. Okay? Um, he also has a clever thing called Pascal's wager. And we'll see if at the end of the hour maybe we'll have some time to talk about that as well. But Pascal says there are, there are three kinds of people. There are those who have no use for God, and they do not have room for him in their life, and they're making no effort to try to hunt him down and try to find him. He says those people are crazy and miserable. Then there are those who seek God but have not found him. Okay? Those people are reasonable, but they're unhappy. They're reasonable because they're doing the reasonable thing. They're searching for God, but they're unhappy because they haven't found him. And finally, there are those who have found God and serve him. Those people are rational and happy. All right, let's go back and kind of look at this piece by piece. What about those who have no use for God and are crazy and miserable? All right, well, all you have to do is just, you know, look on, just turn on the TV or get on the news sometime and look at the people who are trying to find meaning in their lives. And some people try to find meaning in their lives, you know, by constantly working on their bodies and their complexion, their skin and their hair, and they, and they just want to be beautiful, beautiful people. 
And, you know, a lot of other people look at them and go, oh, if only I could be as handsome as him or if I could be as beautiful as she is or if only I had, you know, his physique or her eyes or whatever and so on. And so since they have no use for God and they're mindlessly pursuing this other stuff, they're crazy, number one, because they're just mindless and they're miserable because they're never going to achieve it. All right. And so, again, those who have no use for God and don't seek him are crazy and miserable. And again, just look around. I mean, the, the, the examples on, on TV and movies and stuff like that are just, the, the, the examples are legion. There's just tons of them out there. The middle one to me is the one that's really quite, you know, is worth looking at. Those who seek God but have not found him, they are reasonable but unhappy. Now, see, the thing of it is, I think that to some extent, this probably includes just about everybody listening to this program right now, including me. All right. You know, we're seeking God. You know, we might have found him to some extent. Okay, we, we you know, to, to the extent that we seek God, we found him and we serve him to a certain point, not completely, you know. And so, you know, we're, we're reasonable people because we're seeking that which is good, which is ultimately God himself. But to the extent that we still haven't completely found him, and mostly because we haven't completely given ourselves over to his service, you know, we're, we're rational, we're reasonable people because we're doing what's rational and reasonable, seeking God. But to the extent that we haven't completely given ourselves over to him, we're still unhappy to some extent. And so I think that when we, when we look at ourselves and say, well, you know, for the most part, yeah, you know, life's okay, I'm doing okay, but I still kind of have that, that gnawing sense inside of me of something just isn't complete, something isn't totally right. And I just don't have this sense of being right with myself and right with the world and, you know, right with the community and stuff. Well, you know, again, that, that sense of, of not rightness is basically where we haven't completely turned ourselves over to God's service yet. So we're reasonable because that's what we desire and that's what we're looking for. But to the extent that we have failed in that regard, we're unhappy, right? Then those who have found God and serve him are reasonable and happy, rational and happy. And okay, now why the, the examples of those folks, again, the, the, the saints of the church give us all kinds of examples. St. Catherine of Siena, St. Teresa of Calcutta, St. Francis of Assisi. You know, all these people, you know, were basically, you know, they were at peace. You know, when we say happy, I guess that's probably not a, a very good word to use if we're going to be precise. But maybe more of, more of a sense of, of joyful joy or contentness, you know, that, that you know, you know a, an inner peace just kind of exudes from people who have found God and serve him, you know, because they've done the reasonable thing. They've, they've tried to search God out, and, and they're happy about it. You know, they, they have a joy that kind of just radiates from them because of that. Now, again, a, a couple of um, little side things from Pascal as well. Um, one of the things Pascal says, he says, you know, God is hidden. You know, God doesn't come out and do a tap dance for us and say, you know, here I am, here I am, you know, I'm God, you know, aren't I cool? You know, he says, God remains sufficiently hidden that those who never seek him will never find him. But those who, but for those who engage in the search, they will never be disappointed. Okay, again, it's another great line from Blaise Pascal. He says, God remains sufficiently hidden that those who do not seek him will never find him. But for those who do engage in the search will never be disappointed. All right. And so, again, you know, for those of us that are, you know, you know, seeking God, again, those who have no use for God and aren't going to seek him, they're not listening to this program right now. They're not coming to Mass on Sunday. You know, all we can do is pray for them, hope we set a good example for them to where they'll look at us and say, well, you know, I'm crazy and miserable. That guy, you know, he might not be happy, but at least he's not crazy, you know. Well, why is that? Well, because he's searching for God, you know. Or, gee, you know, look at her. She's reasonable and she's happy and she's, she exudes joy. Why? Well, because she's found God and she serves him. And so those who have no use for God, who are crazy and miserable, would hopefully look at those who are at least searching for him and those who have searched for him, found him, and serve him, and they would say, well, whatever they have, I don't have and I want it. And that, by the way, is what we call evangelization. And so hopefully, um, again, you know, kind of putting those things in that order, it helps us to see things. A little side thing, since I do have a little bit of time here, there's another thing called Pascal's Wager, um, which, I'll, which I'll go over with you here really quick as well. And then we'll go back to take the three eyes and these three things from Pascal and put them together. Pascal's Wager is, it's a bet. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a wager um, basically saying, you know, without appealing to, you know, faith, is it reasonable to believe in God? And Pascal is, he's putting a bet on the table and saying, 
it's in your best interest to bet on God, okay? Because when it comes to God, there are two and only two possibilities. Either God exists or God doesn't. End of discussion, okay? So when it comes to the existence of God, there are only two possibilities. Either God exists or he does not exist, all right? And then when it comes to my ascension to my, my relationship to this reality, either I believe in God or I do not believe in God, okay? So, that, you know, basically we have, you know, on, on one axis of the, of the grid, we have these two possibilities, God exists or God does not exist. On the other axis, we have either I believe or I do not believe, okay? Now, so the, there, there's four possibilities. God exists and I believe. God exists, I do not believe. There's two. Or God does not exist and I believe, Three, God does not exist. I do not believe. Four, okay? So we got these four possibilities. And for every one of these possibilities, there are, you know, two outcomes of what I gain or what I lose, okay? So let's, let's, let's entertain the possibility that God does not exist, okay? If God does not exist and I do not believe in him, I do not believe that God exists and God, in fact, does not exist, what do I gain? Well, I gain nothing. What do I lose? I lose nothing. Okay, now what if God does not exist? And I do believe. Okay, God is basically just a fairy tale. He, he never has existed. You know, we're just existing here in time and space out of some happy accident of evolution or something like what they want to tell us. And so God does not exist, but I believe in Him anyway. What do I gain? Well, if God does not exist, I don't gain anything. And if God does not exist, what do I lose? Well, I don't lose anything either. Okay. So if God does not exist, whether I believe or don't believe, I gain nothing and I lose nothing, all right? Now, but what if God does exist, okay? If God does exist and I do not believe, I lose everything and I gain nothing, okay? If God does exist and I do believe, I gain everything and I lose nothing, okay? So let's go over those one more time. If God does exist and I do not believe, I gain nothing and I lose everything. If God does exist and I do believe, then I gain everything and I lose nothing, all right? And so therefore, what, what Pascal is saying is the only reasonable thing to do is to believe in God, okay? Because if God does not exist and I believe anyway, I don't lose anything, I don't gain anything. It's, it's a zero, it's a, it's a wash. But if God does exist and I do believe, then I gain everything, eternal life, and I lose nothing. Okay, so again, this is the kind of you know the kind of thinking that, that Pascal did. You know, just kind of very rational, reasonable sorts of things. And so, um, you know, the, the Pascal's wager is a, is kind of a fun little tool. If you have someone that says they don't believe in God, it's say, well, just throw Pascal's wager out in front of them, and you know, see what they see what they do with that. Because again, you're not appealing to faith; you're just appealing to two objectively demonstrable um, realities: either God exists or God doesn't, and either I believe or I don't. You know, that's not in the Bible anywhere. That's just you know simple logic. And so again, I think you know, good old Pascal. You some of the stuff he says, you know, he, he's, he's a pretty good thinker there. But let's go back now and look at our three eyes and look at the things that we had from Pascal. First of all, remember the first eye was the eye of the body. And the eye of the body perceives truth through shapes, forms, and data, and so on. Okay? I think there's a, there's a little, little bit of a link to that, to Pascal's group of people who have no use for God. And, and therefore are crazy and miserable, okay? You know, when, when you look at the, you know, the, the predominant culture in most of our colleges and universities, sad to say even a lot of the Catholic colleges and universities, if you were to be in a, in a sociology class or a psychology class or, you know, something like that, and you're talking to, you know, political science class, and you're talking about some issue, and, you know, maybe you're, you're talking about the, you know, you know, about seeing to the needs of the poor or something. And you're saying, well, you know, what, what are society's obligations to the poor? And so someone might say, well, you know, I think that there needs to be, you know, basic, you know, services available to make sure at least nobody goes to bed hungry, you know, and that if we can expand that to, you know, help, you know, poor people with educational opportunities and job training and things like that, so much the better. And someone says, well, why? And you say, well, because my master is a man named Jesus of Nazareth, and he tells me that if I'm to be his follower, I have to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the sick and, you know, reach out to the poor and disenfranchise and things like that. 
Well, again, in your in your college political science class, they would go, well, that's nice, you know, but you know, what's the real reason? Okay, because you know, because our our data, you know, shows us that you know that when we have, you know, if we help the poor and stuff and get people out of poverty, then you know, our society is better and less violent and blah 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 blah. Okay, all sorts of things, and so again, you have the eye of the body which would perceive these truths only through through data. You know, let's look at the sociological data that helping the poor does for us, and that will tell us that we should help the poor, all right? And again, those people have no, no use for God. They're not trying to seek the will of God, much less put themselves at the service of it. And in the end, those folks are just crazy and miserable. And so I think that's what happens when, whenever if we reduce truth to that which only we can perceive through the eyes of our body, we're consigning ourselves to being crazy and miserable, ultimately, in the end, okay? I mean, there's all kinds of bandages and stuff we can put on it on the outside. You know, as long as we can, you know, kind of deflect the pain and numb things down with entertainment and, you know, all the various things that we have to kind of keep us from really looking inward and facing, you know, true inner spiritual realities, you know, then as long as there's a football game to go to or as long as there's illicit sex to be had or as long as there's marijuana to be smoked or whatever, you know, then, you know, we can can avoid these things indefinitely. But sooner or later, we, uh, it comes down to it. And we have to look in, inward and see if this stuff is real or true or not. Then, the middle eye, the eye that you know, the eye of the mind that perceives truth through reason. I think that might kind of correspond to those who seek God, but have not yet found Him. Who are reasonable, but they're unhappy. Okay, because again, you know, the, the mind is going to perceive truth through reason, and I think what's happened in in our in our culture to an extent that um, those who are seeking God. You know, through through the um, you know during the '60s and so on, when all of our catechetical stuff fell apart, and thanks be to God, it's been coming back together. I think through the teaching of apologetics, and also in, in a lot of our um, you know at least in our high school religion curriculums and stuff, there are there are books and there are, there are materials out there now that are good that are based on Scripture and the Catechism, and that are that are sound materials where, you know, you can teach people sound stuff. You know, I think, you know, during the, the glory days of the Baltimore Catechism that a lot of people talk about, you know, the idea was, well, you learned your catechism. You learned these questions and answers, and then once you learned it, you were done. And see, the mistake they made back then was, no, once you learn it, now you're just getting started. Now that we all understand, you know, what's the definition of a sacrament? A sacrament is not where it's instituted by Christ to give grace. Okay, well, everybody knows the answer to that. But now, now that we all have that common vocabulary, now let's go back and talk about that. You know, what is the outward sign of baptism? Well, it's water. When was it instituted by Christ? Well, at the end of the Gospel of St. Matthew, go out and baptize all the nations, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's where it's instituted by Christ. You know, it gives grace. You know, that you know, divine life is transmitted to us, you know, through the water and through the sacramental actions of baptism and so on. And so um, the, the thing is, is, is rather than in the 60s, rather than going, okay, we've built this tremendous foundation of people who know their catechism, now let's discuss it. Let's talk about it. Instead, what they did during the 60s was they completely chucked it. You know, the idea of, you know, learning, okay, you're going to memorize the Ten Commandments. Oh, that was bad. Memorization is bad. Instead, let's talk about our experience, okay? Let's talk about our experience of, you know, how would I feel if someone stole my stuff? How do I feel if someone lies to me? How would I feel if someone harmed me? And therefore, since these things might make me feel bad, well, then therefore we should tell the truth. Therefore, we should not steal and so on. And um, again, you just look, you look at the social and the moral and, the, and even the religious chaos that came out of the 60s and 70s, and that's all the proof that I think that we need to see that getting rid of reason was not a good thing to do. Okay, and so the thing is, is what what's happened now is that people are rediscovering reason. They're rediscovering that hey, you know, belief in God and the Ten Commandments and the teachings of Jesus and so on. These things are all reasonable things to do. Okay, the mind sees that stuff through reason, and now people are rediscovering that, and it's it's taking them in the direction of God. Okay, and so they're reasonable because these things are helping them to search for God. But they're not quite happy yet because they haven't quite found them, okay? And so, again, I think that that middle eye, the eye of the mind perceiving truth through reason, and those who seek God but have, have not found him, but they're reasonable because they're seeking God, but to the extent that they have not found to the extent they have found him, they're happy. But to the extent that they have not found him yet, they're unhappy.
All right. And so I think we can see how those things fit together quite nicely. Then lastly, then we have the, the eye of the heart that perceives truth through faith. All right. And remember from the first part of the broadcast here, heart does not mean the center of emotion. Heart means the center of the person. It means the core of the person, the core of the person where everything that we have and that we are, you know, that um, what we love and what we don't love and what we desire and what we don't desire, you know, our mind, our will, our intellect, you know, our sexuality, all that kind of stuff. Everything that makes us who and what we are perceives truth through faith. All right. And what I tried to demonstrate in the first part of the program is that arriving at truth through faith for the heart, for the core of the person, is every bit as reasonable as the mind perceiving truth through reason and the eye of the of the body perceiving truth through shapes and forms and data. All right. And so if you have the eye of the eye of the heart, of the core of the person perceiving truth through faith, well then those who have found God. Are, and then Pascal says the last group, those who have found God and serve him, are reasonable, they're rational and happy. Okay. Well, how did they ultimately find God? They had to have found God beginning with a leap of faith. All right. And so the, again, that, that part of our, of our inner being, wherever the, the, you know, the, the mind and the, the, the soul and you know, our, our desires and, and our mind and will and intellect and all that stuff comes together, you know, it perceives truth through faith. And truth is ultimately God himself. What does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we're searching for truth, we're ultimately searching for Christ because he is truth itself, all right? And so again, those who have found God and serve him are reasonable people and they are happy people. Well, again, how did they find God except through faith? And so ho hopefully, you know, you sort of see here, there's sort of a map that, um, you know, we, we may start off, and there's lots of examples of people out there. Again, C.S. Lewis is one of them, and you know, hopefully, we, you know, every one of us knows a story or two of people who start off believing in nothing. You know, they don't believe in God, and they they kind of come to the conclusion that they're crazy and miserable. All right, and then they begin in the, they begin the search. Okay, they 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 start off thinking that well, truth is just you know whatever I can experience. And so um, whenever they, 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 then that takes them as far as they can and they hit a brick wall and they're, they're basically find that they're crazy and miserable. Then, you know, they start looking then for reasonable things. And whenever we find certain, whenever we find certain things that are reasonable, that reason kind of, it's stimulating. It's like, wow, I didn't know this stuff made sense. This all kind of fits together. Um, this, is, this is pretty cool. And so, um, again, the mind will perceive truth through reason, and those who seek God, they're looking for him, but just haven't quite found him yet, are reasonable, but they're just not very happy because they haven't found the fullness of God. And then finally then, you know, the eye of the heart, perceiving truth through faith, are those who have found God, serve him, and are reasonable and happy. And that way, I think, see, I think that if we see that, that map in front of us, it helps us to kind of see where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. You know, maybe, I mean, at one time when we were little, before we knew any better, before our parents primarily taught us, you know, we didn't know anything about God. You know, as little kids, you know, most little kids, you know, they're basically, you know, programmed to look after themselves, you know, to get what they can for themselves. And so, again, it's the parents that begin to teach us, no, you know, Jesus wants us to share, you know, and things like that. And so, um, you know, we go from being crazy and miserable, you know, to, you know, actually being being more, you know, reasonable and rational, but still but still unhappy to a certain extent because, you know, we're trying to, you know, integrate God into our lives somehow. And see, again, I think that middle piece there from, from Pascal's little map is really helpful to most of us because I think most of us, and like I said earlier, I certainly include myself on this, you know, we're seeking God, which makes us reasonable, but, you know, to the extent that we still haven't quite found him and the, and the way that we can tell that we haven't found him is the part of us that we're withholding from him. That, um, you know, we'll, a lot of us have, um, like um, Cardinal John Henry Newman said, most Christians, he says, are not really interested in pleasing God. We're interested in pleasing ourselves. We want to maximize the pleasure we give to, our, we give to ourselves without displeasing God, all right? Which is, he says, what most Christians want to do. This is as opposed, you know, to some pagan or some non-believer who could care less what God wants. They just want to maximize the pleasure to themselves, no matter what the cost and whoever gets hurt in the, in the process, they could care less. But um, John Henry Newman says that, um, that most Christians, what we want to do is we're not really interested in pleasing God. We want to maximize 
you know, taking care of ourselves just without displeasing God, you know. And so if I can keep myself entertained and, you know, help keep myself happy and doing whatever it is I want to do with just without ticking God off, well, then that's what most of us want to do, which is why, you know, we're reasonable because, you know, we're not actively trying to displease God, but we're still unhappy because we haven't given ourselves over to, over to God's will and totally over to his service yet. And then um, so finally, then we want to look then to the, to the example of the saints, Whose, you know, whose heart allows them to perceive truth through faith, and they find God by serving him and are rational and they're happy for doing it, right? And so again, hopefully, you know, this is one of those deals where it's a good thing we have Catholic radio because it'd be kind of a hard thing to explain this all in, a, you know, in an eight-minute Sunday sermon. But nonetheless, there's a lot going on here, and there's a lot you have to kind of envision in your head, especially like with Pascal's wager and then the three eyes and then these three kinds of people that Pascal talks about. That's a lot to kind of keep track of. I suppose you can get on the KVDM website, and um, you can go back and listen to it again maybe and slow it down if you have to. But um, that's just sort of you know my attempt to kind of take these ideas from, from C.S. Lewis and Bishop Fulton Sheen and put it together with an idea from Blaise Pascal and hopefully kind of give us a sense of a map as to where we are and where we're going. You know, we start off not believing in God to some extent, then we, we start to believe in him, we start to see that it's reasonable to believe in him, and then hopefully we get to the point where, you know, we, we perceive the truth of God through the eye of faith, and that um, we, you know, we find him and then we serve him and are reasonable and happy for doing so. So again, that kind of winds up on this installment of the Double-Edged Sword program here on KRTT 88.1 Great Bend and KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And this has been um, the voice of divine mercy here um, for Ellis and Barton counties and the surrounding areas. We do invite you at any time to go to our website at dv, that's v as in Victor, at dvmercy.com. And um, on the website, there are archived um, installments of Double-Edged Sword, which you can listen to at your leisure. There are also archived um, installments of the One Body Program. That's one of the things that's kind of cool about our radio station here in in the Elliston-Barton County Metroplex is we actually have two locally produced programs. That's not usual. A lot of the other uh, Catholic radio stations use the programming from EWTN like we do as well. But to have locally produced programs, that, that's something that not a whole lot of places have. And we're blessed to have that. And we invite you to take advantage of those listening opportunities. Also, feel free to call into the station. Um, you can call here at um, 785-621-4110. And also, again, you can avail yourself to the to the website if you have a question or if you have a, a, a suggestion for a future um, installment of Double-Edged Sword and you want us to do the homework and then kind of do a, do a program for you, we can certainly do that. And again, if you want to um, donate to, to our radio apostolate here, um, there's a donate button on the, on the website as well. We are totally listener supported. I support this radio station. I don't get paid for doing this. In fact, I pay the radio station. I, you know, I contribute at the, at the carathons and so on, and other people contribute throughout the year um, to keep these Catholic radio waves on the air, and we invite everyone who's listening to, um, to do so as well. And so, again, there's a, there's a donate button at the, at the dvmercy.com website as well. So, again, I am Father Fred Gatchett. You've been listening to the Double-Edged Sword Program here on KVDM 88.1 Hayes and KRTT Great Bend. And we are the voice of divine mercy. And we thank you for tuning in. Um, God bless, and we'll look forward to seeing you the next time.